every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show here on the America Out Loud Network. I have to believe that you are tuned into this program and others like it because at some level you have decided that you will not live the lie. This is a phrase going back to actually I think it's an essay written by uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the guy who spent many years in the Soviet gulag for making an unkind comment about uh, Joseph Stalin in a letter to one of his uh, army comrades. But the the purpose is, uh, the, the, the idea behind not living the lie is simply this. When you live in a time where everything around you, especially from the power centers in your world, is calculated to force you to say things that are untrue, to live things that are untrue, to abandon your principles, in fact, to abandon your very grasp on reality. One of the bravest and most moral things that a person can do is refuse to live that lie. And it could be, you know, I mean, look, I could start with any number of lies. Masks work, and those children need to be masked as they go off to school. Not my kid. <laughs> Sorry, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put my kid out there to to promote that lie that uh, oh, masks are gonna save us all from COVID, or that uh, you know, vaccinations are the answer to everything. This is just one small example, but the bottom line is so much of the totalitarianism that the world has seen is always accompanied by propaganda, and I think it was Theodore Dalrymple who who made the comment that. You know, the purpose of that propaganda isn't so much to deceive the population. It's not like people can't see with their own eyes what's going on. Instead, it's intended to humiliate the population, to demonstrate to them, this is how powerless you are. This is how pathetic you are, that you will go along with this even though you know, for instance, that uh, what is happening around us is not an example of building back better or anything like that. It's the deliberate destruction of the principles and the the precautionary uh, barriers that were set in place to preserve your freedoms. But we're supposed to pretend like, oh, no, man, they're doing us a favor when they tell us, you know, we can't work and we have to have a jab and all of that. Nope. Don't participate in the lie. And so to that end, I'm going to hopefully give you some good intellectual ammunition. You can stock up today. 
cost is right, too. It's not going to cost you too much other than just a little bit of your time and, and hopefully a little bit of an open mind. Well, I joke around sometimes, and I've heard others say that uh, because of this inversion of reality, and, and by that I mean the official narrative, right? There is no such thing as election fraud, and everything that the government has done regarding COVID-19 was proper, and it worked. Okay, this is the narrative we're supposed to respond to. Maybe you've heard the Department of Homeland Security has recently elevated misinformation to a terror threat, meaning that the vast might of the federal government and all of its intelligence-seeking and homeland security apparatus is now focused on finding and preventing the spread of misinformation. Okay, now I might be paranoid. It's very possible that I've got this totally wrong, but that sounds a lot to me like uh, open season on anybody who disagrees with those who are currently holding the reins of power. Isn't that convenient? I think it's meant to be that way. And so this inversion of reality, the things we're supposed to believe that, you know, aren't necessarily so. You know, that guy who now says he's a girl and is beating the crud out of girls in all of these collegiate sports. No, it's really a woman. And of course, men can menstruate, men can give birth and... There's a lot that we're being told we have to believe. So when I hear people refer to it as clown world, I nod my head. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what it feels like. We're, We're living in clown world. Well, who knew? The people who seem so intent on forcing us to, uh, to switch our residence to clown world apparently have serious issues with the sound of horns going honk honk. Now, this could go a couple of different directions. Uh, those of you who are familiar with internet memes will know Pepe the Clown, honk honk. You know, <laughs> that's that's actually been uh, one of the big uh, weapons of mockery that uh, Trump supporters and others have used to to push back against the woke. And it's uh, I take it in in you know good humor. It's it's I think it's it's fun. It's ridicule, which is almost impossible to defend against. And for people who already take themselves way too seriously, I mean, this is just an absolute affront. But there's a there's a very specific problem with the, the purveyors of clown world north of the U.S. border up in, in Canada. And they are really upset about the sound of horns going honk honk. In fact, let me let me just play a little excerpt for you. This is just this is a brief taste of what the people in downtown Ottawa have been hearing as part of the. Uh, Freedom Convoy efforts up there. Yeah, it's pretty pretty hard to ignore, wouldn't you say? (laughs) This is actually from footage from a drone flying over downtown Ottawa. And I mean, the streets are absolutely lined with trucks. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't laugh because I know it's making some people really upset. Some people are like, my cat it, it fear pooped on the bed and I haven't slept in five days and I'm losing my mind. And, you know, I, I want to feel sorry for him. But at the same time, these are the same people who are advocating for the government ought to force every person who's unvaccinated to suffer. And so it's like, well, you know, I guess if, if karma is exact, what you are wishing on others is now coming back on you. I wanted to give you a take, though, from a Canadian, someone who actually lives in downtown Ottawa. His name is Hugh Hunter. 
and he apparently is a big supporter of the idea that the honking will continue until freedom improves. So Hugh Hunter says, I live in Ottawa, downtown Ottawa. In fact, while writing this, I'm wearing noise-canceling headphones because even with the windows closed, the sound of horns from the, free, the Freedom Convoy truckers is deafening. So why can't I stop smiling? And he says, I can't stop smiling because my Canadian countrymen have stepped up on one of the great moral questions facing my generation. Should government health mandates be forcibly applied to ordinary people who want to be left alone to live their lives? Now, the Canadian government has made vaccinations necessary to do certain jobs. The government says that if you want to be an international trucker or a banker or a public servant, you must let us inject a COVID-19 vaccine into your body. Of course, as some have disingenuously pointed out, there's an alternative. If you don't want the jab, you can just give up the career that you've built. In some some cases, over many years, maybe you didn't want the job that badly after all. Well, where have I heard this before, he asks. and Oh, yeah, those are the same options that were offered to young actresses by Harvey Weinstein. Now, some people will object. Yes, they will say this is compulsion, but in the case of COVID-19, it's a necessary compulsion. We are at war with a virus. In order to win this war, we must do things that we would not ordinarily contemplate. As we've done in other wars, like, you know, things like intern our Japanese or German fellow citizens or drop fire bombs and nuclear bombs on women and children or devastate jungles and their inhabitants with Agent Orange or subject randomly, randomly submitted, randomly selected grannies to uh, invasive pre-flight screening. Now, admittedly, he says in all those cases, such measures came to seem both evil and useless. But in our case, the argument goes, moral compromise just might prove to be the key to victory. He says, several years ago, when I was teaching philosophy in universities across this continent, I often discussed this scenario with my students. It is a danger particular to democracies, and it's called a tyranny of the majority. A majority can tyrannize a minority when the majority forces the minority to comply simply because the majority is bigger and stronger. Now, of course, that's not the story that the majority tells itself. The majority thinks of their actions as righteous and urgent, and they insist that no one could legitimately disagree. That's why to properly evaluate mandatory vaccinations, we should try to achieve a critical distance. We should ask whether the bureaucratic incentives to find COVID cases and disincentives to find bad vaccine reactions could not possibly have influenced our final tally. In fact, we should wonder exactly why health services have been unable to disambiguate deaths with COVID from deaths from COVID. We should at least acknowledge that many countries with low vaccination rates also appear to have lower death rates than our own. We should consider why nations like Japan are using alternative treatments. Now, he says, I think by now most people have heard such arguments. But if you haven't, the Off Guardian offers an excellent crib sheet. Now, the point is that there is room for intelligent people to disagree. And if intelligent people can disagree, is it not a mistake to shout down or force into obedience the reasonable minority? See, in the heat of the moment, when the pressure's on, it takes moral courage and practical wisdom to stand up for a minority. Being alert for such moments is perhaps a lot to ask of people who don't want to spend their lives thinking about such things as a tyranny of the majority. So he says, I reserve my full contempt for my former colleagues in the academy. 
the reason that our societies offer executive tier pay and the protection of tenure to academics, and in particular to philosophers, is so that in moments like this, they will serve as the conscience of the nation. And with the exception of a few brave voices, he says, my beloved discipline of philosophy has failed the test of our times. After the fact, once we are able to judge clearly again, we may be surprised to regard all that we've agreed to. He says, many people will wonder what on earth had them so scared. Many will lament the powers transferred to government. Many who are quiet today will admit that they had doubts all along. And as horror stories of vaccine side effects continue to trickle through my social circle, I worry that many more will find a source of sorrow in their decision to be vaccinated. Now, Hugh Hunter says, we're not there yet. Today, we have patriotic truckers venting their frustration in the only way they have left. The powerful, including what was once the conservative press, have already formed their counter-narrative. The people who yawned through BLM chaos and a wave of church burning are now claiming the moral high ground because they conveniently have discovered a few, to date he says, I've heard of exactly two extreme voices in a crowd of tens of thousands of peaceful protesters. And they think these voices should drown out the ordinary families who just want to be allowed to live their lives. He says the powerful aren't yet willing to listen. Maybe the only way to get through to them is to lean on the horn Again, this is Hugh Hunter, the author of How to Be a Philosopher in the Manly Saints Project. Ah, I have the deepest respect for those folks in Canada who are standing firm. and The, the hankiness of their government, particularly their law enforcement officials and, and uh, their prime minister, is, is pretty sickening to behold. The lies that are told, well, these people are they're, they're, they're disrupting the public safety and they're doing things that are harmful and, you know, never mind. You know, the the harm that's being done to people who are being forced to choose between, do you want to keep working? Do you want to keep providing for your family? Or do you want to take this experimental genetic therapy, which we tell you is a vaccine? That's an easy choice, you know, just, you know, choose what you want. And then try to pretend that that's not coercion. Well, you know, you do have a choice to make. I can shoot you in the head or I can shoot you in the stomach. But either way, I'm going to shoot you. Make your choice. And remember, you wanted this. Scary stuff. I think uh, it's encouraging to see the number of people, and I mean common people. You know, as I look at those truckers, and, and I've, granted, I've only seen a handful of videos, but what I see are people who are decent, scared. I mean, that's, to me, that, that actually gives credibility to what they're doing. These do not appear to be power seekers. They don't appear to be the kind of opportunistic little violent thugs that we saw run, <laughs> excuse me, running roughshod through America in 2020. And yet the press and their government, you know, is, is doing everything but calling them terrorists. What a crazy position to be in. And the fact that they're out there in the dead of winter... And, and standing firm, and despite all the things, the police stealing their gas and, you know, taking away their food and threatening to arrest them, and the things they're arresting them for, I mean, this is serious stuff. You know, they've made a lot of arrests, and that, that tells you just how wrong this freedom convoy is. Oh, yeah, they've arrested people for mischief. Mm-hmm. There's an ambiguous term. Anybody want to define what that actually means or, you know, what that refers to? Oh, yes, well, we've also arrested people for hate crimes. Really? 
wow, another unspecified predicate where, you know, you pretty much let the, the person who's listening fill in whatever their brain or their emotions want to fill in. What could that mean? They busted people for not wearing seatbelts, for having a, a an inappropriate muffler or, or, or having, a, I forget what the exact term is, but like an aftermarket muffler or for simply excessive honking of their horns. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, that's some fine serving and protecting, boys. That's, uh, you're keeping the people of Ottawa very, very safe. Look, I, I think I speak for, for a lot of people when I say nobody wants to see violence. Violence uh, at best serves the interests of the state because it provides the justification to crack down and to, to make people's lives even more miserable. But when enough people have reached the breaking point to where they're like, look, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to suffer discomfort. I'm willing to risk my job. I'm willing to sit out here and not know where my next paycheck is going to come from. That's a pretty bold move because they actually have skin in the game. And they're doing it not so that they can obtain power and then force everybody else to do what they want. I think they're asking something much more reasonable. Get your foot off the back of my neck. That is what they're telling government. In fact, being Canada, they, I think they probably started with, mate, would you mind taking your foot off the back of my neck? <laughs> because that's what they, you know, they're, they're just polite people. They're very accommodating. But if we're to the point where the Canadians are pissed enough that average people are getting up and spending time in the street and, you know, letting their government know this is not acceptable. You know, in a truly democratic society, government would be responsive. Government would be, you know, willing to listen to them. But what do they get now? They get called racist and sexist and, you know, and and terrorists. And all the state can do is escalate, escalate. Well, we'll take your gas. We'll take your food. We're going to tow away your cars. I think this is where the, the movie uh, An Ant's Life is illustrative because... The, the grasshoppers only lord their, their control over the ants because the ants hadn't yet realized that they vastly outnumber those grasshoppers. And the same is true for the enforcers in the regime there in Ottawa. Now, it doesn't, doesn't help that you have outfits like GoFundMe where $10 million in donations were suddenly seized well, you can't have these. Why, this violates our terms of service. Why, you're you're committing criminal acts. Well, you have officials that are making up crimes on the spot so that they don't have to listen to people who are saying we've had enough. By the way, it is, uh, it's more than just a little bit satisfying to see GoFundMe getting bent over a Molson barrel for taking that money. And uh, I guess people have been asking for the refunds. In fact, I don't think you even have to ask at this point. Now, GoFundMe is refunding the money, which costs them about 10 to $15 per chargeback. So they're paying through the nose. But the fact that they would step up in the first place and seize funds that were donated in good faith to people who are peacefully protesting policies that, that are, are, to their thinking, outrageous. Look, it would be one thing. See, GoFundMe has no problem with collecting funds for, um, for instance, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. 
They had no fu- no problem collecting funds and allowing hundreds of thousands of dollars to flow through them to defend rioters. And I mean legit rioters, burning police stations, uh, besieging City Hall, destroying people's property, assaulting people in Portland, Oregon. Why does that get a pass? But these truckers standing up for not just their freedom, but everybody's freedom to make health choices for themselves rather than have it imposed on them from above. GoFundMe, oh, you got to draw the line somewhere. This violates our terms of service. Now, thankfully, there are other crowdfunding options available. But the writing's on the wall for anybody who's paying attention. I mean, for crying out loud, could it be more clear that big tech, particularly the left-leaning parts of big tech, are deeply in bed with government? Not just the Canadian government, but you see this in the U.S. as well. Now, I'm, you know, other than withhold your your funds from them, don't do business with them wherever you can, but also just be aware. Know that uh, they are doing things for whatever reason. I don't know if it's because they're woke. I don't know if it's because, you know, they, they really buy into the whole idea that the Great Reset must go forward and, all this personal autonomy and such is standing in their way. But there's a great lesson here, too, in, in the standpoint of, uh, you know, if you, if you are paying attention, you are seeing that uh, cashless society could be a very dangerous proposition. That's probably the single biggest lesson, I would say, from, uh, you know, from the... The idea that uh, you know we, we can get along fine without any cash in society, or that uh, that our, our currency should be something, <coughs> excuse me, controlled by you know uh, the central banks or or the federal government. I saw this meme the other day. This is probably worth sharing. It says the GoFundMe cancellation of the truckers' money should make you all aware of how a cashless society will work. Namely, the government gets mad at you and they wipe out your money. The end. Think they can't get mad at you? You think you're a good citizen? Well, welcome to the social credit system. I mean, people have been warning about this for a long time. I think back to the mid-1990s. I used to read a a monthly newsletter called the McIlvaney Intelligence Report. Interviewed Don McIlvaney a number of times on my radio show. I thought he was a very uh, straightforward, no-nonsense kind of guy. And clear back in, uh, I'm like, we're talking like 1995, Don McIlvaney was warning, the move towards a cashless society is a move toward electronic fascism. Now, I know the word fascism gets thrown around a lot today, primarily by people who are behaving like fascists. But the importance of what Don McIlvaney was warning about has become more and more clear over the years. And as you see the war on cash escalating, and it takes a lot of different forms from the police officer who will confiscate what, what he considers a large amount of cash that you have with you under the name of civil asset forfeiture. It's theft. That's all it is. The only difference is this robber is wearing a state-issued costume, and uh, you, know, you aren't allowed to resist him like you would a normal robber. But the same action is there. Someone is taking something under a threat of deadly force that is not theirs, and you either stand and deliver, or 
You'll be punished. You'll be victimized, killed if you resist vigorously enough. Besides the fact you go to an all digital kind of system, again, controlled by government, every transaction that you are a part of is now knowledge of the government. They know exactly what you've been spending your money on. They know exactly, you know, how much you've made. They, they don't even have to ask you for the taxes at this point. Well, just reach into your account and take it. I know, it kind of gets you thinking about, well, okay, what can we do? What are, what are some of the alternatives to, uh, to the system that's unfolding before us? I don't have the answer. I think, uh, I believe that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency, you know, blockchain-based solutions are probably a part of the solution, but I don't think they're the entire solution. Barter? Well, that's an option, too. Building parallel economies? Okay, now I think we're starting to get somewhere. This is the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is the America Out Loud Network. Healthy Cell makes a wonderful line of products, and I want to spend just a minute with you on REM sleep. Do you know Healthy Cell's product has calming herbs, amino acids, minerals, and sleep hormone support for the four-stage human sleep cycle? Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and achieve REM or rapid eye movement sleep. Through the phases, fall asleep easily. That component of sleep is favorably impacted by melatonin, lemon balm extract, and GABA, lowering the body temperature. That element is influenced by glycine, magnesium, and calcium. Deep lasting sleep, L-theanine, vitamin D3, and vitamin B6. And finally, creativity boosting REM sleep. 5-HTP, vitamin B6, and GABA. Many of us think we need to sleep because we're short on sleep, but we need quality sleep. So please consider Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement. I have one tonight, and I'm going to have a much better night's sleep if I uh, compare to if not taking it. So go to uh, HealthyCell.com, and in the promo box, uh, type in out loud, and that'll give you a 20% uh, discount off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. The spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com 
where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hey, welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde. This is the America Out Loud Network. And this is a message for anyone who is honest in heart, humble in spirit, willing to stand for the truth when standing for the truth is hard, willing to speak the truth even when their voice shakes. This is a message for you and encouragement to to stand your ground. Just like people before us have been willing to do the heavy lifting and to suffer the uh, indignities that were inflicted on them, in the name of freedom. It's worth it. And I thank you in advance for whatever it is that you are doing to help further that cause. You know, having a productive discussion in this time and age is kind of a challenge because we live in a time where there are so many people who are just looking for a reason to be offended. I wanted to share some really sage advice from a writer by the name of Joaquin Book. Pick this up off of his Medium account with some very, uh, very highly applicable information on apologies and hurt feelings. Now, see, I, I, I want to confess here, first of all, I spent a lot of years behind the microphone um, arguing professionally with people. And I got pretty good at it, too. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of, uh, lot of fun and a good verbal throwdown. But I came to the conclusion it really doesn't seem to accomplish much other than, you know, leaving both parties convinced all the more that I was right and you were wrong. And, you know, there, there has to be a winner when there's any kind of a discussion. I believe that it's possible to have productive, good discussions with people. But it takes work and it takes humility. And that's pretty hard to, to accomplish when someone is just, you know, trying to, to control you through weaponized guilt. Well, I'm a victim, and therefore you have to do everything that I say. So when I read Joaquin's take on apologies and hurt feelings, the subtitle here is, you should probably say, I'm sorry that you feel that way more often and reject those who think that's a terrible and hurtful phrase. You ever had to say this to somebody? Somebody goes to assign blame to you and you have to say, well... I'm sorry you feel that way, but you know what you're accusing me of doesn't necessarily match up with what I'm perceiving here. Joaquim says, a thing about apologies has troubled me for some months. Some might say for most of my life. In fact, he says, uh, maybe I'm too stubborn. Maybe I'm too narcissistic. Maybe I just don't care about people's feelings that much. Whatever the case, the hatred that the passive-aggressive semi-apology, I'm sorry you feel that way, receives seems to me mostly undeserved. He says the phrase has its use contrary to the woke war waged against it. So you have the Huffington Post running things like, if you say this during an apology, you're doing it wrong. Or Psychology Today reports it along with 12 other fake apologies as tools wielded by narcissists. Wikipedia even has an entry called Non-Apology Apology. It reads, saying I'm sorry you feel that way to someone who has been offended by a statement is a non-apology apology. It does not admit there was anything wrong with the remarks made and may imply the person took offense for hypersensitive or irrational reasons. Now, Joaquin Book says, as I am often want to do, I argue this is all mistaken. Now, he says, the basic premise of my rejection 
is that the party who has been offended does not have a monopoly on either what happened or the values involved in the actions taken or words spoken. It takes two to tango and symmetry rules. And he says it's hard bridging the gap between minds. Talking to strangers is hard. Talking to friends and loved ones sometimes even harder. There's a gap between intention and interpretation and an overarching disagreement over what's proper behavior. But the woke, culturally sensitive case overlooks all that. This is what Jane Brody writes in the New York Times. Quote, I admit to a lifetime of challenges when it came to apologizing, especially when I thought I was right or misunderstood, or that the offended party was being overly sensitive. But I recently discovered that the need for an apology is less about me than the person who, for whatever reason, is offended by something I said or did or failed to do, regardless of my intentions. End quote. Okay, top sensitivity stuff, the supposed victim's feelings rule. Now, Joaquin Book says, according to Dr. Harriet Lerner, whose book on apologies frequently gets quoted, I'm sorry you feel that way is a way to shift the focus away from the person in error towards the person making the accusation. Precisely. But he says that's not a lapse of judgment or some obvious crime against humanity, but exactly the point. I'm sorry that you feel that way is saying... I care about your emotional well-being and don't want you to suffer, but I disagree with the charge you've laid at my door. What you say was an error wasn't an error, or you misread the situation or the intended meaning of my words. So he says, let me explain by using my favorite game theoretic tool, which is a four-quadrant box. Now, there are four options available in a two-person relationship, peace, agreement, and two sets of conflict, an innocent one and an aggressive one. Now, these are words he says I just made up to make the explanation easier. So, if you picture a quadrant, peace is at the bottom right. This is quadrant four. If we both think that our respective words and behavior were not in error, well, then we're at peace. No apology owed. On the other hand, agreement is at the top right of the quadrant. This is quadrant one. If we both think that I was in error, we both agree that I owe you an apology, which hopefully I will deliver to the best of my sincerest abilities. Apology owed and delivered. Now, quadrant two is the top left. That's innocent conflict. If I believe I was in error, but you don't, well, then we're overshooting the mark. I will apologize. You'll brush it away as if nothing, as if it were nothing. Believing sincerely, there was nothing to apologize for. No apology owed, but one was delivered anyway. In the bottom left quadrant, this is quadrant three, and this is aggressive conflict. This is where all the fuss is where we disagree over whether an error has been committed and whether an apology is owed. If I believe you wronged me, I think you owe me an apology. You disagree. So either you don't think that my characterization and or feeling of what happened is correct, or you don't think that what happened constitutes an error, or at least one worthy of an apology. So an apology may or may not be owed, but hasn't been delivered. Therefore, the matter is unsettled. Now, I'm sorry you feel that way is a phrase for quadrant three, because it indicates that we're in dispute either over what happened, there are two, two perspectives and interpretations equally worthy of respect, or over whether that behavior is an error, meaning that our value systems don't overlap. 
Now, the rants against that sordid phrase confuses a situation of quadrant three with the column to the right, which is either quadrant one or quadrant four. People who righteously write about the horrid people who apologized with this phrase think we're in a situation of agreement when we're actually not. Your assessment of values of what happened and what happened are not universally true just because you feel them. It's a case of mistaken category. When someone says, I'm sorry you feel that way, it's a message that you disagree over whether or not errors were committed. It's a conflict of values or interpretations, but one where the accused still cares for your well-being and wishes to maintain a relationship. It's a phrase that says, I disagree with your reading of the situation, or I disagree with the values that made you take offense, but that I'm still interested in maintaining our relationship, and I want to make sure that we can still do that. Now, Joaquin Books says that last part is crucial. So he says, let me explain with another schematic graph. On the left side, on the left column, is the clear break that most of us have experienced at some some point where a relationship falls apart. One person does or says something so unforgivable to the other that the parties can no longer coexist. That's it. So the left column says there's a point. There is a point beyond which a relationship cannot be salvaged. One party passed a point where the other no longer has interest in upholding the relationship. When it ends, no apologies are owed or the ones the other party thinks they're owed are not recognized. Now, the area to the right is one of negotiation beyond which lies blissful coexistence. I may disagree with the values or the interpretation, but the conflict is so minor that I'm happy to give in. I'll apologize unconditionally because I value the continuation of this relationship more than whatever the topic of conflict is. Over time, my values will probably align with yours. So, on the right column, there are some minor conflicts where even though I think I'm right and no apology is owed, I'll still apologize because it's not worth the hassle to me. Now, most couples can think of instances like this, perhaps even celebrate them as the meaning of compromise, of negotiating life together where values and opinions differ slightly. So the phrase, I'm sorry you feel that way, falls squarely in between these two columns. It'd be we end the relationship because something has happened that neither that one or more of us cannot support, and it's, it's just done, versus I'm willing to apologize even if I really wasn't in the wrong because I value that relationship. See, this is brilliant. I'm sorry you feel that way is where you still want to maintain the relationship as it were before the conflict, but you still can't accept or give in to the value system and or interpretation of events. After all, one party does not have monopoly on truth. The other person's value systems do not unilaterally decide what isn't and is acceptable behavior. But then again, having the ability to admit or even contemplate that oneself is mistaken is an ability short on stock these days, so no wonder. He says our perceptions, feelings, and interpretations of what took place are not accurate record-keeping devices because we can see things that didn't happen, we can infer others' motivations that weren't there, In fact, errors can happen in both directions. Joaquin Book says, Strange, I find that the very people who are quick to reject reality for personal experience, those who invoke lived experience, or you don't know what it's like to be X, are also those who are the least able to grasp this distinction. They're the ones to reject the I'm sorry you feel that way most aggressively. 
if they feel that they've been wronged and an apology is owed, and that's that. No considering whether the other person's lived experience differs from theirs. The victim status of, I felt offended, carries no currency here. They don't seem to grasp that others can have a different interpretation of things and that another's claim to what is and isn't an offense is on equal footing with yours. That's why so much of woke ideology fails the basic test of universal, universal ability. In relation with others, one cannot hold that one is uniquely special. Symmetry rules. Stanford's Encyclopedia of Philosophy helpfully writes, The requirement that moral judgments be universal, let me try that again, universalizable, (laughs) that's a word I've not used before, is roughly the equivalent that such judgments be independent of any particular point of view. Thus, an agent who judges that A ought morally to do X in situation S ought to be willing to endorse the same judgment whether she herself happens to be A or some other individual involved in the situation someone who perhaps will be directly affected by A's actions, or an entirely neutral observer. Her particular identity is completely irrelevant in the determination of the correctness or inappropriateness or appropriateness of the judgment. Now he says, with a straight face, one cannot coherently argue that rules for everyone don't apply to me, or at least not expect to be taken seriously. No, you're not a special case, simply because the world as you see it is observed through your eyes. Now, another way to frame this is, as Brett Weinstein does in the clip that he includes in his article, that an apology is a discussion of debt. Those who rally against, I'm sorry you feel that way, focus on the debt part, but they overlook that the phrase is an invitation to the discussion part. Think about the phrasing in Brody's quote, the need for an apology is about the other person's feelings. Well, says who? There's no universally accepted or objectively measured standards against which the need for an apology can be measured. Nobody owns the truth of what took place between two people. And nobody owns the right to interpret the moral value scales that demand that. Relationships are negotiated, and your perspectives of what took place and what values ought to guide that kind of interaction are not correct by default. The other person has equal right to assess different values of behavior, different interpretation, or intentionality of what happened. So I'm sorry you feel that way has its use and place in every relationship. Because what it says is, I will not recognize or accept the error with which you have charged me. But I will also not walk away from this relationship. May we now discuss what explains the person's behavior what prompted the victim to feel offended, and how the two of you may coexist in the future. I know there's there's a lot to follow there, but that is, that's some seriously helpful information. And just like I've had people try to tell me, you know, uh, political correctness is is not about uh, doing what other people are demanding of you. It's just simple manners. Yeah, sure it is. Which is why, you know, simple manners have to be compelled. Look, I don't want to push back too hard on this, but, uh, you know, if a, if a person is, is wanting to be mannerly, that's something they really need to choose of their own volition, not be forced into. I mean, everybody's going to be mannerly with a gun held to their head. Does that make them a good person? Hardly. Being a good person is having the capacity 
and maybe even the desire to not be a good person, but choosing to be a good person in spite of that. Can you see the difference? Likewise, when people are just so dead set on being offended, making sure that everybody knows, you know, I'm offended and you need to pay for it and you need to make sure that you are under my control. I think one of the best responses I've heard when someone was really ladling out the guilt was, I don't accept your guilt. Now, be prepared. If you, if you try this on, uh, on some woke people, they will flip out and, and just go ballistic on you. But at the same time, I think this is the kind of thing that needs to be tempered with the, with the understanding of, um, who am I talking to? Is this someone whose who's opinion I actually value? Is this a relationship that I would want to preserve? For instance, if it's a family member, sometimes maybe it's easier to swallow your pride and to actually, you know, give the mea culpa or, or apologize, even if it's not justified, but simply because you value the relationship. Here's the variation of, of how it might be said. I love you more than I need to be right. I mean, I, I, I sat back and watched a friend's family get divided over uh, a money issue. And when I say divided, I mean like disowned. Certain members of the family were disowned and they took certain, you know, members of their extended family with them. And there's this huge rift and it started over a disagreement over money. You know, go figure. But rather than trying to keep some harmony in the family, you know, um, and this one of the family members told me, he goes, gosh, you know, if, if, if it was me in that situation... I'd rather eat a $50,000 loss than see my family divided for, for maybe generations. I mean, it's clear somebody was wronged. You know, somebody's been harmed. But what matters more in the long run? And I tend to think that uh, this is the kind of thing that, uh, you know, most of us probably won't confront those kinds of, you know, decisions until we're, we're looking at uh, the finish line of life approaching and going, okay, was that really worth it? I mean, I proved to my sister I was right, and we haven't spoken in 20 years, but, you know, I'll go to my grave knowing that I was right, and after I'm dead and buried, she has to live with the fact that I was right. Somehow that seems like kind of a pyrrhic victory. Yeah, you won, but at what cost? And does it cause pain that's, uh, that is carried for a lot longer than it needs to be? All right, I've ruminated enough on this, but uh, there is a time when an apology is the way to go, and there's times when it's okay to set those limits and say, I know you're looking for an apology, and I do care about your feelings, and I'm sorry you feel that way, but I don't accept the guilt that you are trying to, to hand to me. No thank you. Now, speaking of apologies, let's talk a little bit about reparations. Ooh, there's a touchy subject. Ideally, reparations should be made to the people who've actually suffered a measurable harm by the people who actually caused that harm. Now, I'm not talking about slavery. I know you'd think that, uh, well, that that would apply. I think the same rule would apply. I'm talking about, uh, how about the business victims of the COVID lockdowns? Got a great article here in front of me from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. Reparations for the business victims of lockdowns. 
And I think he's making a good call for people who have actually been harmed. He says, with pandemic controls gradually ending, many people have called for some kind of justice to be realized. Investigations on the origin and implementation of lockdowns and mandates and punishment for the perpetrators and compensation for the victims. How wonderful it would be. And he says, yet I tend to agree with Clarence Darrow, who wrote that the state has no means to dispense pure justice in the Aristotelian sense. It cannot undo wrongs, repay costs sufficient to restore what it has destroyed, or punish people enough to alleviate the suffering it wrought. It's also the worst possible institution to be charged with such a task. It's impossible or implausible, rather, to believe that the perpetrator can be trusted with the task of restitution. Now, there's no making up for two years of lost education and art. No means to revive the hundreds of thousands of businesses, that's about a third of all small businesses, that were forced to close and no path to restore the life hopes of millions who were so cruelly shattered. There's no fixing those whose cancers were not treated when hospitals were closed to routine screenings. No way to bring back those who died alone without friends or family because their loved ones had to comply with stay-at-home orders. The damage is done. The carnage is all around us. Nothing can change that. But he says we can hope for truth and honesty. But longing for pure justice is futile. And that realization makes the pandemic response even more morally objectionable. If, however, we think of lockdown reparations as consisting of some form of compensation, well, there could be a path for a new crop of political leaders to pursue. And if you think about it, there's precedent for this. The U.S. government did pay reparations to those victimized in Japanese internment camps during World War II. Germany was forced to pay reparations after World War I. That didn't end very well. And the very ideas baked into the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which says, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Lockdowns seem like a taking as described by the Constitution. Governments took private property from millions of business owners, churches, schools, and families. They took control of hospitals, gyms, recreation centers, meeting locations, skating rinks, movie theaters, libraries, and just about every other business except the big box stores that were deemed essential and non-disease spreading. Now, this clearly was unjust. Tucker says the feds that the feds doled out low interest loans and so on to sustain many hardly makes up for the taking away of the right to do business. In fact, he says, even if you believe that all this taking was necessary for public use, there's still the job of compensation. And the trouble is that the taxpayer, namely government, which has no resources of its own, everything it pays for, it gets from taxing, borrowing or inflating, all of which come out of the productivity of others, which means even more taking. Now, it also doesn't seem right to take the compensation fund, even from the big businesses that got rich during the lockdowns, simply because they did, in fact, provide a valuable service. As Richard Epstein, author of Takings, Private Property and the Power of Eminent Domain, points out, the core idea behind the takings clause is that the state can seize private property only when doing so solves some market failure, such as a free rider or holdout problem. Now, this supposedly generates a surplus of wealth from which the expropriated victims can be compensated so that the act of taking, at least in theory, makes everyone better off or at least no worse off. But the lockdowns and related mandates did not create wealth or solve any market failures. They were pure acts of destruction. 
The lockdowns only did damage. They did not generate any surplus wealth from which the victims can be compensated. This is, in fact, one reason Epstein would strictly limit the state's power of eminent domain to situations where there are clear gains, such as highways and the like. So Tucker says, my suggestion then is to let the compensation, the reparations, take the form of relief from continued impositions of high taxes, mandates, and regulations, particularly as they affect small businesses, which were the hardest hit from the pandemic lockdowns. In other words, to make up for the wrongs done and to rebuild a vibrant small business sector, the owners need to be emancipated from the bureaucratic tangles, taxes, and demands that have tightened over the decades. I don't know if you knew this, but the burden of government, according to the American Action Forum, five years ago cost small businesses 3.3 billion hours and 64.6 billion dollars per year. Small businesses must comply with more than 379 hours of paperwork annually, or nearly the equivalent of 10 full-time work weeks. The numbers are undoubtedly higher now, as any small business owner can tell you. Highly capitalized, larger companies can bear these burdens much easier. That's one reason they exist in the first place. But such interventions forestall the realization of genuine competition and entrench an elite class within enterprise. This was made vastly worse during the lockdowns, where the privilege of staying open was allocated to those with political connections, while independent businesses were slammed shut. So here's the plan that Jeffrey Tucker is suggesting. How to compensate? He says, my proposal is, in short, all businesses with fewer than 1,000 employees should be exempt from all federal corporate taxes, FICA taxes, and all other expensive and arduous mandated benefits, including health care mandates, for a period of 10 years. Now, he says, ideally, I would make it longer, but I'm trying here to think about political viability. This would not restore what was was lost, but it would provide some compensation for those that managed to survive, and it would also provide an excellent and fertile ground for new businesses. It would also have symbolic value, clearly showing an awareness of the egregious attack on small business that took place over two years. Small businesses are the 99% that employ nearly half the workers in America. A healthy and thriving small business sector is evidence of a society committed to genuine free enterprise versus a cartelized system that favors only large, politically connected corporations. Reparations for them seems like a moderate but essential step. Now, I have to say, to Jeffrey Tucker's credit, he also considers the objections. Number one being the lockdowns were mostly imposed by states, not the federal government. That's technically true, but only because the federal government doesn't have the means to enact a lockdown. From March 13, 2020 and onward, the federal government clearly encouraged them, pressed the states into service. And, of course, the CDC and NIH put massive pressure on every state health official to enact emergency edicts that had the force of law. So, also states should be considering compensation. Number two, FICA taxes, Social Security, unemployment, etc., help the worker. Removing the mandate that small businesses pays only hurts workers. Well, he says, actually, workers pay the whole bill in an economic sense, so eliminating these taxes could end up boosting wages and helping millions of people make the transition to private savings as opposed to the pathetic Social Security system. Eliminating the federal corporate tax will also translate into higher wages and great profitability all around. 
Number three, eliminating the health care mandate will harm workers. Jeffrey Tucker says actually it's workers who pay the premiums out of their wages and salaries, despite the illusion. Allowing businesses to opt out would allow for each worker to make a decision about what kind of package they want to purchase if they want to do so at all. The lockdowns made telemedicine far more viable, and there are ever more doctors' consortiums that are operating on a cash basis. Perhaps the new party in power will finally address the crying need for health insurance reform, making it available to people more readily outside the corporate setting. Objection number four, it's not fair to offer this to small business but not to large ones, plus it punishes businesses with 1,500 employees and grants favors to those with 1,000 or fewer employees. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says this is true, but the cutoff has to be somewhere. And because it's small businesses that were harmed the most, they ought to be the first ones in line for compensation. Now, the lockdowns were and are an intolerable attack on property rights. The freedom of association, free enterprise, and the basic rights of trade and exchange that have been the bedrock of a thriving economy since the ancient world. And they were also without precedent on this scale. Jeffrey Tucker says, we need a clear statement from the top that this was wrong and did not achieve the aims. A well-constructed reparations package would make the point. Now, he says, we should be under no illusions that this is likely to happen, but it's still interesting to consider whether and to what extent some degree of justice is realizable. Reparations aside, we need some kind of universal guarantee embedded in enforceable law that nothing like these lockdowns can ever happen again. In fact, he says they should be ruled out in any society that considers itself free. Bravo. And I agree 100%. I think Tucker is absolutely correct on this. Again, that's Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. Yeah. I'd like to see some compensation happening. I'd like to see justice done. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Network.